the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, It's lovely to see you all in church today. A very warm welcome to you. Uh, as, as has already been said, it's great to see you, whether you're visiting us today or whether you're one of our regulars. It's just lovely to be able to meet together to worship the Lord. And uh, Carol, thank you so much for leading our prayers. That was a really powerful and helpful time of uh, committing ourselves and our world into our Lord's hands. My name is Paul Cook. I'm one of the leaders here at Belmont, and it's my privilege today to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And we're going to be thinking today... Uh, about John chapter 7. And this comes in two parts. So part one is today and part two is going to be next Sunday, God willing. And today we're going to be looking at the first 24 verses of John chapter 7. Um, There are two things that I'd like us to think about uh, um, overall this morning. Uh, And those are, first of all, the idea of family. I'm sure we've got lots of families represented here today. It's half term coming up. So we've got families who are away and families who are visiting. So we'll think about family a little bit. uh, And then we'll also think about discernment. Uh, But before we get to those two big themes, um, I'd like us to think about something uh, slightly different. I'd like us to think about festivals. Are you a festival goer? Do you like a festival? One or two people might uh, have been to Glastonbury. Anybody been to Glastonbury? Oh, hardly anybody. Okay. <laughs> More of a Glyndebourne crowd, clearly. Um, I've, I've not been to, to Glastonbury, but I know several people who have, and uh, they've really enjoyed it. I've got to say the combination of uncertain weather, tents, uh, and uh, Portaloos doesn't particularly appeal to me. But uh, I know some people love it, and I can understand the energy that you must have when you're in those places, the joy, the celebration, the music, the sights, the sounds. Uh, It must be pretty thrilling and exciting. If you've ever been to any kind of festival at all, just imagine what that atmosphere was like, because that's the atmosphere that we're actually going to be having in our background in John chapter 7, because it's a festival chapter. I'm not going to say too much about the festival this week. I'll say a little bit more about it next week. But it's important that we know that that's the background. It's specifically a Jewish festival that's called the Festival of Tabernacles that we have got to. Um, This is a harvest festival. So it's a festival that takes place in the autumn time. We're told in the Old Testament where this uh, festival is described that once the crops of the land have been gathered in, in the autumn, then everybody is to celebrate this festival to God for seven days to thank him for giving them all that they need to live on. But it's also more than that, because this is a festival where the Jews were told to construct special tabernacles, special tents, special temporary shelters. Why do they do that? Well, the Old Testament and Leviticus explains Uh, Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so that your descendants will know that I made the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. So it's also not just a harvest celebration, but it's a celebration of God's protection, of God's deliverance when he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and then accompanied them on their journey to the promised land. But the Israelites had to travel light. 
For 40 years they were wandering, and for 40 years they were living under canvas. And therefore, uh, the, uh, the Lord says, remember this by living in these temporary shelters for seven days. And there were three big Jewish festivals that all uh, Jews were supposed to observe. And Deuteronomy 16 tells us what those festivals were. The first one, and these were to be held uh, in Jerusalem, where that photograph is taken as a, as a modern example of this. The first is the festival of unleavened bread. That's around our Easter time. The second is the festival of weeks. That's a kind of an early harvest festival when they just start gathering the crops in. And then the third one, that's the one we're thinking about this morning, is the Festival of Tabernacles, as I say, in the autumn. Okay, so that's the background that we're going to be thinking about in John chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible, you might like to open it now because we're going to uh, read the passage together. If you've got one of these church Bibles that are dotted around the place in red boxes, it's going to be page 1012. If you've got a phone, you can find it yourself, obviously. And um, if you prefer to look at the screen, it will be up there as well. So let's, uh, let's look at God's word together. John chapter 7, and uh, starting at verse 1. After this, so this is what we were talking about uh, last week with Alex and the week before with Saz, where we've got the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. We've got Jesus walking on the water. We've got him talking about uh, the need to eat his, as he puts it, his flesh and his blood and the fact that many people turned away from him at that point because they didn't understand what he was talking about. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee because that's where he's been on the boat, up in the north of Israel. He did not want to go about in Judea, down in the south where Jerusalem is, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near... Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. See, their, their argument is, you know, Galilee's all right. I mean, that's where we live. That's where, we've been, that's where we've been brought up. But it's a bit of a provincial backwater. You need to go to where the action is. And as all Jews have been instructed to go down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, that's surely the perfect place for you, Jesus, to go and show people what you're all about. Okay, then they say, verse four, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. You can see what they're thinking about Jesus, can't you? They're thinking, he just wants to make a name for himself. Since you're doing these things, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people, since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time. Sorry, I'm on the wrong verse there. Therefore, there we are. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the feast. I am not going up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. 
Just in case you're thinking, hang on, is Jesus telling a bit of a white lie there? Is Jesus telling a bit of a fib? You might, if you've got a version of the Bible in front of you, you might notice that uh, some manuscripts say uh, in verse 8, Jesus says, I am not yet going up to this feast. Obviously, he was going to go to the feast because that was something that he was supposed to do as a Jewish man. But he's saying to his brothers, I'm not going to go now. I'm not going to go on your terms following your agenda because I have an agenda from my heavenly father to focus on. And he goes up in secret. And then verse 11. Now at the feast in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? They knew he had to come. Where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Okay, that brings us to uh, our first uh, big thing for this morning. I want to talk about family uh, from those first 13 verses. I think we've, we've mentioned this before in our John series, but there is a theme of sibling tension going on a little bit in this book. And we know all about sibling tensions in royal families, don't we? And Jesus' family, we shouldn't forget this, was a royal family. Joseph, his stepfather, was of the royal line of David. And although it's no longer a current royal family at the time that Jesus uh, and his siblings are around, they must have had that family memory. And it feels as though there's quite a bit of tension between Jesus' brothers and, and their oldest sibling. Do you remember what they said? No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. But it's not that they got his best interests at heart. It's not that they want him to gather more disciples to himself. John tells us very clearly in verse 5, even his own brothers did not believe in him. What a sad comment and how difficult that must have been for Jesus. I wonder what it was like growing up with Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That must have been quite difficult, I imagine, growing up with Jesus. Anybody who's got siblings, you know what it's like, right? You know, it's not always the easiest relationship to have. But can you imagine growing up with somebody who never put a foot wrong, who you could never blame for doing anything naughty, and who was always perfectly good and loving and wise and kind? <laughs> I can imagine that must have been quite difficult for Jesus' brothers um, and sisters. We know that he had several brothers and sisters. We know that he had brothers who were called James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And we know that he had several sisters, at least two and probably more than that. We know that from Matthew chapter 13. And I just wonder how these folk felt about him as they were the growing up. Uh, something to reflect on, but we don't know. But what we do know is that at this stage in Jesus' ministry... He had members of his family who didn't believe in who he was and what he'd come to do. And I wonder if today some of us will have family members who don't know Jesus for themselves and don't believe in him. I know I do. 
And I'm fairly confident that pretty much every other Christian in this room will feel that they know exactly what that's like as well. And I think this passage tells us a few things that are really helpful and powerful. The first is just simply this. Jesus understands what it's like when we have family members who are deeply, deeply precious to us and who do not know him as their Lord and their saviour. It's incredibly painful for most of us who are followers of Jesus when we know that we've got family members who don't know him. Incredibly painful. Jesus knows exactly what that pain is like. And if you're anything like me, you probably carry a burden of guilt about those family members who are not yet following Jesus. You may think, have I not explained the gospel clearly enough? Have I explained the gospel too much and put people off? Have they looked at me in my life and seen a disconnect between what I say and how I live? And have I put people off Jesus? I think about that a lot in relation to the people in my family who aren't yet followers of Jesus. And I find that I take heart from this passage because I know for a fact that Jesus would never have had disconnect between his words and his actions. I know that. And I know that he would have had it absolutely right when it came to sharing about God's purposes for his brothers and his sisters. And yet, even he was at a state here, a stage here, where his brothers did not believe in him. I find that very comforting, that uh, it's, not absol- it's not actually down to us. It's about God's work through his Holy Spirit, drawing people at the right time to come to know him. And here's the third thing I would say from, from Jesus' experience um, that we read about. I would say, just don't give up. Don't give up witnessing to your unsaved family members. Keep on sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Keep on loving them unconditionally, absolutely unconditionally, and keep on praying for them every day. Because if people are unbelieving at the moment, it doesn't mean that they will always be unbelieving. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer a follower of Jesus. If, if that's you this morning, you are so welcome. We love to have people in our church every week who are not yet followers of Jesus. If you have somebody in your family who is a follower of Jesus, they will be praying for you. I hope that encourages you. You might not even know it, but they will be praying for you to come and know Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, the one who rescues you from death and destruction for now and for all eternity. And when we look at the family of Jesus, we can see how some of them changed. I only showed you half of the picture previously. Here's the other half of the picture. James, presumably the next eldest uh, of the siblings, we find out that he became a leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Church tradition tells us that Judas is probably the same Jude who was the writer, the author of the epistle, the letter that bear his name in the New Testament. 
And as for the others, well, we can't be certain, but uh, a very distinguished Bible scholar called Professor Richard Borkham has done some really interesting work which suggests that several of the other siblings as well might have gone on to play an important role in the early church. If you want the reference afterwards, I can, I can send it to you. But here's the important thing. Unbelieving family members can come at any point to know God's love for themselves and be part of his plans and his purposes. So let's never give up, never, ever give up praying for those who don't yet know the Lord. Okay, that's the, that's the first thing I wanted to talk about, the first big thing, family. Here's the second thing we're going to talk about a little bit, discernment. And to do that, we need to go back to, uh, go back to our Bibles. So we're still on page 1012, looking at verses 14 through to 24. It says this, Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? He hadn't been to the top rabbinical schools. He hadn't been to rabbinical school at all. He was a workman. He'd worked in, in his stepfather's workshop making things. That's what he'd done in his, uh, in his teenage years. And yet, he taught with this incredible authority and this incredible wisdom. Where on earth did he get it from? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. It comes from my heavenly father, he's saying. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. That's what his brothers were accusing him of, weren't they? You know, anybody who wants to be a, 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 a public figure doesn't do these things in secret, they'd said. Jesus is saying, I'm not after personal glory. That's not my agenda at all. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, God Almighty, is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. And then he goes on. He changes tack slightly. In verse 18, um, sorry, verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Moses is one of the great Old Testament figures, and he is the one whose name uh, is appended to the law of Moses. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? He's referring them back to that most famous part of the law, the Ten Commandments. Commandment number six says, thou shalt not kill. And yet Jesus says, you've got a plot to kill me. Why are you doing that? You're not keeping the law. And the crowd, who know nothing of this plot amongst the leaders to try and kill Jesus, say, you're crazy. You're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And then Jesus explains to them what's going on. He says, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Do you remember what miracle that was? Do you remember the last time that Jesus had been in Jerusalem prior to this Feast of Tabernacles? It was, it was the time he did this miracle. You remember this? The man, with the, uh, the man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. The man who was just by the pool 
of um, Bethesda. And Jesus came to him and said, you want to get well? And eventually he told him to pick up his mat and walk. And he leapt to his feet and he didn't need his mat. He didn't need his crutches because he'd been completely, um, completely healed. Do you remember that healing? That's the miracle that Jesus is talking about here. I did that and you're all amazed. And because of that miracle, back in John chapter 5, we were told that the Jewish leaders tried to, were trying to kill him. Not just because of the healing, but because he was calling God his own father and was therefore making himself equal with God. Okay, so that's what Jesus has uh, in, his, in his mind at this point. And then he says, yet, verse 22, because Moses gave you circumcision though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the Old Testament practice of circumcising baby boys eight days after they, uh, after they were born. And the law of averages dictates, obviously, that the eighth day could sometimes fall on a Sabbath. And the thing that the, Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders did if it fell on a Sabbath, was they, they did the circumcision. They did the circumcision because they had a, um, a principle which said, uh, the law which commands you to do something positive takes precedence over the law that tells you not to do something. And so they circumcised their baby boys on the eighth day, even though they weren't supposed to be doing any work. So Jesus says, look back at the whole of your religious history, and you can see how people understand that doing the right thing is actually more important than sticking to the official letter of something. Seeing the spirit of the law is what it's all about. And he says, you, you do that, you know that, when it comes to circumcising little boys. And so he says, now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Jesus says, I haven't just come to do a symbolic healing of a little boy. I've come to heal an entire grown man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. So here's his punchline and our final verse for today. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Judgment is, is one of those complicated words. Simon mentioned it a little bit uh, in one of his sermons um, a few weeks ago. But I want to talk not about God's judgment, but I want to talk about the judgment that we might fall into as human beings. And I think there are at least two types of judgment, and it's really important that we don't confuse the two because they're two quite different things. The first type of judgment is what I'm going to call disdainful judgment. This is the kind of judgment when you just look down on somebody and go, I'm so glad I'm not like you. That's a horrible kind of judgment, isn't it? To be honest, it's the kind of judgment we can fall into quite easily, I think. That's why Jesus tells us we're not to do it. But... It's easy and it's horrible, disdainful judgment. Jesus tells us really clearly, Matthew chapter 7, do not judge in that way or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. 
And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Disdainful judgment. And then he tells us this little, gives us this little picture, which is so powerful, isn't it? Why do you look at that speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? We're so good at doing that, aren't we? So good at seeing the specks, less good at seeing the planks. Jesus says that kind of judgment is never appropriate for us as his followers. Disdainful judgment is out. But there's a second type of judgment, and this is discerning judgment, which is completely different. And this is a type of judgment we're not to avoid. This is a type of judgment we are to exercise very clearly. So, for example, here's Jesus' brother James, the one who didn't even believe in him in John chapter 7, when he's become a leader of the church in Acts chapter 15, says, it is my judgment, therefore. Literally in the Greek, he says, I judge. Jesus has said, do not judge. But clearly here, he's doing the right kind of judgment. I judge, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Absolutely. Good call, James. Here's another example of it. Here's the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Corinthians. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The implicit answer is no business of mine at all. No business of mine at all to judge those outside the church. But he says, are you not to judge those inside? And clearly the implied answer is, yes, you are. We are called to exercise the faculty of judgment, of discerning judgment within our church communities. And sometimes I think we struggle with that whole area of, of distinguishing, distinguishing between those two types of judgment because it's quite easy to kind of yeah, get confused over that, I suppose. Um, this is a, a lady called um, Natasha Crane. And Sarah, my wife, recommended this book to me uh, that she's written recently called Faithfully Different. Um, she's best known, Natasha Crane, for writing books about helping parents uh, navigate faith-based conversations with their children. And I recommend her for that, certainly. But this book is one that she's written for people with or without children. And I haven't read the whole thing, but I have read a chapter that she's called Reinvigorating the Spirit of discernment, and I think she's absolutely on to something. She says this. She says that there are too many false Jesuses out there, too many visions of Jesus which are just not complete. They're not whole visions of Jesus. They don't take in the full compass of his, of his teaching, and they can lead us badly astray. So one example is, for example, prosperity Jesus. You might have heard of the prosperity gospel. Just trust in Jesus, and all, you, and all you'll ever know is wealth and blessing from that point onwards. Health and wealth. No. No. The Bible never, ever promises us that. So that's a false, incomplete Jesus. Or how about this one? Non-evangelizing Jesus. This is the idea that we never, ever have to share our faith with people as long as we're doing good works. Because good works speak for themselves. And by a sense of, of osmosis, somehow, people will pick up the gospel through works of love and kindness. No. <laughs> works of love, love and kindness are wonderful. And they might lead to conversations about why we need the good news of Jesus Christ, salvation from judgment and death and destruction and hell. But unless we do the sharing, people will never hear that. 
But the, uh, the, ju- the, uh, the false Jesus that I think is particularly relevant for this morning is the judge not Jesus. And she says this about the judge not Jesus. If ever a Christian suggests that something is morally wrong, there's a high probability that judge not Jesus will be summoned to repeat the only statement he apparently ever made. Uh, And that's kind of tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but a lot of people know the the passage where it says in Matthew 7, do not judge, or you too will be judged. But of course, Jesus says more than that, doesn't he? And so she says, in its fuller context, Matthew 7 is a warning, and a very necessary warning, against hypocritical judgment, but not against all judgment. And she finishes where our passage this morning, morning finishes in John 7, 24, where Jesus explicitly tells us to judge, but with right judgment. And I think it's really important that we try and get those two different types of judgment sorted out. Never disdainful, because that's completely ungodly and against what Jesus teaches, but making sure we exercise discerning judgment in the right way at the right time by God's grace. Okay. That's, uh, those are the two things I said I wanted to talk about this morning from this passage. But now I want to just bring us to uh, our moment of communion. Because actually those two big things, I realized late in the day, actually, they're very relevant to communion. So I just want to finish with this thought from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we come to the bread and the wine, the emblems of Jesus. Paul says this, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. That's a form of discernment, isn't it? Examining ourselves. Not are we good enough, because we're never good enough. It's are our hearts in the right place to come and receive forgiveness and wholeness from Jesus. We need to examine ourselves. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That means partly what Alex was talking about last week, that the bread and the wine, they represent the body and the the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to discern that as we share communion. But we are also the body of Christ, collectively. And we need to discern the fact that we are doing this as a family. And Paul uses the language of family in that verse 33. My brothers and sisters, my Brothers and sisters, us here today, as we gather now to eat, we should do it together. Let's do it as family discerning the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.